up for the gospel, and yet we feel this pressure, even maybe sometimes it appears to be foolishness. Wouldn't it be great if, if there, you know, God could give us a message of some sort to tell us it's going to be okay? Wouldn't it be, oh, he did. It's the Bible, and especially the book of Revelation. That's what this is. Remember, this is a letter written to real Christians in Asia who were suffering just like you and I are suffering. And so it's a letter for them to encourage them, and it did encourage them 2,000 years ago, but it's a letter to us as well. It's to the church. And it's not just a, a, you know, some, some cryptic, futuristic mystery book. And that, we've kind of made it that, right, in our churches. We've made this kind of this futuristic mystery uh, book that nobody can really understand. It kind of scares us. We, we, we try our best. No, it's a timeless, relevant, encouraging promise from God to his people telling us everything is going to be okay. The Lamb of God wins. My children will be gathered home secure. That's what the book reminds us and, and encourages us with. So having said that, uh, just to review again, as we've been going through Revelation, the book of Revelation reveals to us how God moves throughout history, judging those who rebel against him and refuse to submit to him, judging those who will continue to persecute his people. That's that's another reason for God's judgment in this world, because the wicked continually rebel, not just against God, but they lash out against God's people. And also we see this repeated theme that God's people will be empowered and strengthened with boldness to preach the gospel until the very end. No matter how that end comes, no matter how tragic that end comes, they will have boldness to be witnesses faithfully for the glory of God. And then finally the very end, right? There's a final judgment. So that, that theme, that's, that's what Revelation is basically about, right? God is judging those who rebel against him. His people are persecuted, but he gives them boldness to continue on in the face of persecution and ultimately judges the world once and for all, casting Satan and all those who reject him into hell for eternity and bringing all of those who have rested in the Lamb of God into eternal bliss, into a new heaven and a new earth, that's, that's it, right? Man, we could quit. Boy, series is over. I'm kidding. But today I want to remind us how that unfolds because we've seen this theme repeated already three specific times in three sections in Revelation. So it's a cyclical message in Revelation. That, that theme repeated over and over and over, over, told from different angles and yet the same points. We've seen the seven seals. We've seen the seven trumpets. And now we are looking at the seven bowl judgments. But again, I remind you that each each section is telling the same story. And as a matter of fact, each section has a similar pattern to it. Remember, in each of these sections, whether it's the seals, the trumpets, or the bowls, judgments one through five symbolize God's judgment throughout the church age, calling people to repent while he's at it, giving them this opportunity. So, so that's, that's the same in every three of those sections, one through five, those first five judgments. Then you have judgment six, which refers to the events shortly before the very end, shortly before the return of Christ and the very end. That's the sixth seal. That's, that's when things are getting pretty bad. So we see a pattern, right? We see that all throughout the ages, there's been persecution. All throughout the ages, we've seen God's wrath and judgment. We've seen Christians suffering. We've seen the gospel go out powerfully, but we've still seen Christian suffering. So we've seen this battle raging, right? All through the ages, all right? 
But now, as time goes on, each one of these visions, whether it's the seals, the trumpets, or the bowls, show us that toward the end, things will accelerate. That sixth seal comes, and that sets up everything for the final seventh seal, the final end of all time as we know it, when God finally, once for all, returns and judges the world. So, having said that, we are now looking at fourth and fifth uh, bowls, the fourth and fifth bowls. And as we do this, I want to uh, ask you to, to think about this. We should look at these as displaying the world's ungodly response to God's judgment throughout the church age. So that's kind of what we're going to see here. Just throughout the years, this, these, these judgments show us. Again, this is still one through, through five. So these are judgments, general judgments that have happened throughout the age. God judging mankind for rebelling against him and persecuting his people. So let's notice these in verse 8. The fourth bowl judgment says this. The fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and it was allowed to scorch people with fire. That's a very odd verse. Again, um, we can see why there's so many crazy interpretations of Revelation. It is a wild vision. It is a, a lot to take in. And yet again, as we realize it's symbology, it's symbolic and and. Don't take it as literal, but we see the, symboli the symbology of it. We begin to see this consistent pattern throughout Revelation. So here it is. What is this talking about? Is it a literal, the sun just gets hotter and starts burning people alive? Is that what this is talking about? The idea of the fourth angel pouring out his bowl on the sun, and it was allowed to scorch people with fire, is this, this is an idea that all throughout history, think about what the sun is. All throughout history, the sun has been a, a symbol of God's care, right? When you think about this, it's, it's a picture of God's goodness. It gives light, warmth, right? It gives, it gives nutrients for plants and animals and for humans to thrive. That's, that's what the sun does. As a matter of fact, Jesus alludes to this in Matthew 5, 45, when he says, for he makes his sun to rise on the evil and on the good and sends his rain on the just and the unjust. So Jesus is saying the sun is a generally good thing for people. God even blesses the wicked by letting the sun rise on their crops and on their lives and give them warmth and blessing. But here's the interesting thing. I like what Richard Phillips says about the concept of now that that which was a blessing to mankind, God is using as a curse to those who rebel against him. Richard Phillips says it like this. The time comes when God removes the blessing of life from those who rebel against him so that what is normally a source of blessing becomes a vehicle for divine judgment. And so this is really true in the lives of every human being that will consistently live their lives for themselves, suppress God's truth, and instead live for themselves, rebel against God's truth. The very blessings that they think they have, everything that this world has, it ultimately will turn on them. It will ultimately become a curse. Even wealth, even, 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 even the, the power, the fame, it, it ultimately can come back to just bite them and destroy them. And, and, and even the things of promise, right? Whether it's substances or the, the drugs that so many people get involved in and say, this will bring me happiness. It's all lies, right? But the point is God allows us sometimes to go and do things and, and have all these things. And in a sense, that which we think, oh, this is good, I love this, it can turn around to actually destroy us. So 
the, again, that's, that's a very general description. But as far as the judgment saying that, hey, here's the point. God can take anything that he's made, even good things, and use those for judgment against mankind. That's how sovereign God is. And when you think about this, we, look, we say, well, that's just not fair. That's just not right. Why would God allow this picture here of something that was good now becoming bad and actually harming mankind and, and burning mankind? Why, would he, why does he do these judgments in the first place? This is, again, the critic's response as we read through Revelation. Many skeptics look at this. They say, how can this be? Over and over, what we see is this, this mean God in heaven pouring out judgments on, on poor human beings, his creation, those who he made. Why would he judge them? And well, when you think about our world, our, secular, our secularist world has blatantly rejected God. They tried to bar his influence everywhere. They've turned their back on him constantly. I mean, just as Revelation portrays, we have replaced God with the, the beast of government, which is what we've already looked at, and the false prophet of secular humanism. This, this is now man's gods. So we would rather rest in politics and we'd rather rest in false religion than we would to submit to the true God. So we make our own powers. We make our own religions. And we deny the God who tr of truth who made us. And so, I mean, think about this. I get millions and millions of, of people applaud as entertainers basically openly glorify satanic things, unholy things, literally pretty much hold a satanic ritual on our television sets, and people applaud and say, oh, this is wonderful. So now we wonder, why then would a holy God judge people? Why would the holy God of the universe actually allow things to turn on the wicked and actually hurt them? Obviously, because we said it last week, it is the holiness of God that naturally lashes out against anything that is unholy. And here's the point. As much as mankind mocks God, as much as they want to dethrone God, as much as our school systems want to take him out of the picture, beginning way back with Darwinian evolution to say, hey, there is no God. We were just an accident. We're our own destiny, right? We are evolving. There is no God and there is no authority. Man, what have we engendered? We've engendered a whole generation that says if there is no God, then we are our own gods. We can do whatever we want. We can be whoever we want to be. We can change our gender. We can make our own pronouns. We can do whatever we want because there's no authority over us. We are our own, our own people. We, we're, we're in charge of our own destiny. But here's the problem. No matter how much man tries to smash out God and snuff out God, he is not dethroned. He, he's always on his throne. And he allows tragedy after tragedy. Here's the thing. Here's what I'm trying to bring us here. This is what Revelation is showing us. That God, through the ages, and it will accelerate as time goes on, but through the ages, God has allowed tragedy after tragedy, catastrophe after catastrophe, to invade the lives of the un ungodly of this world. Why? to give them a chance to humble themselves before him and cry out for mercy and grace. That's, that's, that's again, this is the reason that God does these things. Psalm chapter 2, 10, 10 and 12. It, 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 this is kind of a parallel to Revelation. We've said this before, but look what the psalmist said. This is just the, the same picture of what's happening with the nations and, and what God is trying to cry out to them. Look 
stop fighting me. I'm going to win this thing. You're, you're no match for me. Stop fighting me and repent. So look what Psalm 2 verse 10 says. Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. So again, this is, this is some of the, the hard verses of Scripture that we read, and we think, wow, one minute we're seeing this God who says, I am warning you, and I am, I am severe with my judgment. Kiss the son lest, lest he be angry and you perish. Wow, that's stern warnings, but is that not the truth? This is, if we believe the Bible, if we believe this, should we not tell people that God is warning us to repent? But look at the glorious ending of this. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Kiss that, kiss the son, lest he be angry. But that means repent. Rest in him. Call him Lord. Humble yourself. And then instead of a judge... He becomes your refuge. Do you see the, the, the beauty of, of Scripture here just warning us? And yet, it's our hard hearts that says, no. Look at what Charles Spurgeon says about that idea. He says, I have learned to kiss the waves that throw me upon the rocks, of, or the rock of ages. I've learned to kiss the waves that throw me up against the rock of ages. Now, that's how we can respond, right? The, the, what is it that throws us up against the rock of ages himself? It is the judgments of God that are allowed to come and beat upon us in this world, right? These things that happen, again, that God is sovereign over all things, so therefore, I'm being pushed against the rock. And I need to, instead of yelling at those waves, yelling at that judgment and cursing it, I need to say, wait a minute, thank you, because you brought me to this rock, and I'm not going to fight this rock. I'm going to bow before this rock. I'm going to fall into this rock's arms. This, this is now my refuge, my Savior. And it only happened because God in his judgment opened my eyes to my need of repentance. And that's, what, that's really what we want to see in this world. That's why we should preach. That's why we should ever reach out to those around us and, and condemn their sin. Why? Because we want them to repent. We believe the Bible enough to say, wait a minute, God is bringing a final judgment and he's bringing judgment to your life now, you don't even see it. Please repent. Please see it and run to him. So, so what's the response then of the wicked here in verse 9? The sun is scorching down upon them. Again, whatever that means, figuratively, whatever judgment God's allowing in their lives, it's happening to cause them to say, Lord, I can't handle this. I need you. I repent. But what's their response? Verse 9, they were scorched by the fierce heat and they cursed the name of God who had power over these plagues. They did not repent and give him glory. So again, this, this is the truth of mankind revealed in Scripture. This is our hearts. This is what we are in our rebelliousness. With... It, 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 Douglas Kelly puts it like this. 
People who refuse to repent are determined not to recognize any connection between a life that displeases God and the pains and sores that follow. That's the blindness of, of lost people. They refuse to see any connection with any judgment that comes their way in connection with their lifestyle that is living blatantly against the holy God. They refuse to see it. Again, this is the blindness of us. And when you look and you think of this, the, the kingdoms of this world are, are like groping, right? If you look at verse 10, look, what, look, look at this next plague, the fifth bowl. So we see this scorching plague, this, this painful judgment that's allowed to fall on people. But instead of repenting and saying, okay, Lord, you've softened my heart. I'll repent while there's hope and while there's time. No, they curse God. They're bitter and they do not repent. And then look at this next one. Verse 10, the fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. Again, the beast pictures the kingdom of the world. It pictures this political system, this anti-God system in our world. Now that we have this, this pouring out upon these kingdoms, plunged into what? Darkness. That's the judgment. They're plunged into darkness. Darkness is a symbol in the Bible of, of a lack of knowledge, no discernment. No understanding. The kingdoms of this world are groping in darkness, just like Egypt. And again, all of these plagues we've noticed in the Bible, they allude back to Egypt. Remember, we've seen the water turn to blood. Uh, we're going to see frogs in a moment. Now we're seeing the darkness, just like in Egypt, when it became totally dark before God finally broke Pharaoh. This was the final plague before the death of the firstborn. Total darkness. And I believe, again, the symbolic picture here is the darkness of man's heart. There's a lack of spiritual understanding among our political leaders today. I mean, those who are leading nations, they're doing it in place of God. God ordained governments. God ordained nations. And the Bible tells us plainly that it's God who raises up kings and sets them aside. So all these people are in place and they answer to God, and yet they're rebellious to God. And they're blind. They're, they're, they're in darkness. I think, I, can't, I cannot stop thinking about back when, when the uh, pandemic was kind of lifting in New York City. I guess it was the mayor of New York City who, who got on television, and he, and, he, and, and he blatantly said, he made a point to, to just be sure that people knew this was not prayer, this was not God, this is us. This is medical ingenuity. So this is just the state that Revelation is, is explaining to us, the state of mankind, especially as we look forward and getting closer toward that end of the sixth plague that will come before the end. And we see this lack of understanding among, among political leaders, right? They acknowledge God in a sense in legal documents. Think about how they do this. Think, think of this. We will acknowledge God in legal documents by declaring that things can be an act of God especially insurance documents, right? Frank may know about this. I mean, there's, there's the, the, these phrases and, and they try to explain a catastrophe that could just per, perhaps take out your house. Well, it's a, it could be called an act of God. So, so we understand this somewhere in the dark recesses of our heart because it's in our language <laughs> as humans. But think about this. Those same politicians who would 
say that. Use those words. This was an act of God. Sometimes you'll hear them say that after a hurricane, even the politicians themselves, where this was a, an act of God and, and so forth. But those same politicians would be horrified and they would cry out in public outrage if someone suggested that hurricanes, tornadoes, terrorist attacks, stock market crashes, and wars are divine acts of God's judgment. If somebody were to say that, and, and they have, by the way, there have been preachers who have said, God, God judges through these things. And they've cried out, no, how dare you say such a thing? Yet all of those things I mentioned are things well within the scope of the book of Revelation called woes. Here, here are woes pronounced upon the world. These things are going to happen. Economic crashes, downfalls of nations, wars, pestilence, all these things. Who's in control of all those things ultimately? That's what Revelation is trying to show us. The God who sits upon the throne of heaven is ultimately in control of all of those things. Now, can we judge a particular person who lives in Miami or in Tampa and a hurricane comes through? And I call my aunt and I say, see, Aunt Betsy, you should have repented because God's judging you right now personally. I can't do that. I, I don't know. I'm not God. But we cannot deny that God has the power, the authority over all of nature and over all of the political powers and over all the militaries of the world to move them wherever he wants for his purposes to bring judgment. That's what we're seeing here. And it's hard, but man refuses to see that. Revelation 16, 10, 11 goes on. And look at this, it's proof of this. It's proof of their hearts being darkened and they can't see and they're blind and they will not see. Look at verse 10 and 11. Here's what they did as the result of being in the darkness, this plague that came. Did they repent and say, Lord, help us. You're right. You are God. No, people gnawed their tongues in anguish and cursed the God of heaven for their pain and sores. They did not repent of their deeds. Again, Romans 1, 21 through 22, this is what Paul said exactly would, would be a judgment upon mankind, this darkness. It says, for although they knew God, and this again, this is what the Bible reveals about human beings over and over. We know there's a God. Deep down, we cannot deny it. We're without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. So there it is. Again, I know this is hard. We say, oh, you're just being mean. I'm just reading the scriptures tonight. This is where we're at, and this is what we're saying, and this is, this is what God is revealing about himself and human beings about themselves. He's holy. He's in charge. <laughs> he's unstoppable. We're not going to stop him. We are the ones who must bend. We must bow before him. We must repent and run to him for refuge. Now let's, let's go to the sixth bowl. <laughs> and now this is where we see the preparing for Armageddon. This is what our title comes from. We're not going to see the battle of Armageddon in, the, in, the, in our verses today, but this is the preparation that the Bible's talking about now. So we've got all these things that have been happening through the years, all these tragedies, all these judgments in the lives of people's personal lives and within neighborhoods and within communities and towns and within states and within whole countries, right? They, whatever, whatever, whatever the calamities. 
And there have been many judgments of God upon this world. Many wars, many famines, many outbreaks, many pestilence. But nothing like we're going to be seeing at the end. Revelation 16, 12 says this. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. Now, this is a very popular verse here. We've, we've looked at this and we think, okay, this is big. Is this literal? Those who would believe it is would say, okay, this is what God is doing now. He's drying up the Euphrates River so that the kings of the east, whether that's China or you know, um, Russia, can now mount massive armies and march down the dry riverbeds into the plain of Megiddo and mount an attack against the actual city of Jerusalem. And if that's the case, that's, that's a horrendous thing. But I want us to look at this. Again, we've been interpreting Revelation very symbolically, very generally, and so I'm obviously not going to take that literal approach, but I want us to notice some things about the sim- symbology here of the Euphrates River being dried up. So the Euphrates was the border between the land God gave Israel and all of her enemies on the east side. So in the days of John, for instance, the, 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 the dreaded Parthians were on that side of the Euphrates. I mean, Rome, they, they, they were pretty powerful, right? But they shook in their boots when they thought about the Parthians coming across. <laughs> and then you look before that, you see Babylon. Babylon was on the border of the Euphrates. And that, of course, was the, the dreaded enemy of, of God's people. So if you look at it this way, we see that that Euphrates is this symbolic withholding of the enemies of God's people from crossing over. But now what we see in this final plague before the end, God removes that withholding. There is no more barrier between the enemies of God's people. They are now free to move unencumbered toward God's people. So I guess what I'm saying is the Euphrates is a symbol of that which withholds the powers of the world against God's people. Richard Phillips puts it like this. It was for this purpose that God dried up the river, which symbolizes the removal of his restraint that had kept earthly foes from uniting against his church. So, again, obviously there's a lot in that word versus saying just Israel. Some dispensationalists would say, okay, it's only Israel that's going to be attacked. But we see that it's the whole church, that Israel and Christians of of the Old Testament, of the New Testament, we are all God's people by faith. Therefore, this is a picture for all of us. There are enemies. The world hates God's people. They want to unite against God's people, against his church, and snuff it out once for all. And what's going to happen is, towards the end, God's going to allow this. He's going to, with, he's going to pull back the, with, the restraints. He's going to dry up the Euphrates. And that barrier is gone symbolically, showing that now all the enemies of God's people around the world can now begin to mobilize, united against them. Now look at this, verse 13 and 14. Because now this is where it just ramps up. So you removed the withholding, and now you're going to have this increased mobilization of evil against God's people. Verse 13, 
And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet three unclean spirits like frogs. For they are demonic spirits performing signs. Now, here it is. Look at where, where they're going. Who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle on the great day of God the Almighty. We're talking about a final showdown here. Between who? All the kings of the world. Against who? God's people. And God himself. So let's just think about this. You, you've got the three pictures here. The dragon is Satan. We already said that. The beast is his, his uh, rule over all the governments. That, that picture of, of government. And then you've got the false prophet, world religion. It's just showing again these three, this three-pronged attack. These three evil spirits coming forth like frogs. Again, frogs are slimy, right? Sneaky, slippery, just like the lies of the enemy, just like the lies of those who would deceive God's people. And so you've got all this happening. This is demonic forces infiltrating who? Well, the governments of all the world. That's what it says, right? And why? To assemble them for battle. So it's to, to infuse them in a sense. So this is a spiritual warfare thing going on here. These spirits are moving, right, around the world, and, and, and they're causing a united assault upon the people of God. Now, I think many, many years ago when we would read Revelation, I mean many years ago, back when I was, I mean, just a little baby, I mean before we had the internet, I was alive before that, computers, yep, I mean, Many of you, I kindly say, were older than me, right? So you were here before they even had bread. I'm kidding. But, you know, I mean, um, sliced bread, so to speak. But I'm saying our great-great-grandfathers would read these verses and not even conceive of how the world would be united as one big army against God's people. How could that ever happen? So, of course, it was all physical. Let's go around and gather China and Russia and mark them down. It had to be that, right? But now we can look at this and, and, and see the sim symbolic picture for what it is. These spirits are way out throughout all the world right now. Our world now can unite against Christians all over the world. America, Palestine, Russia, Canada, Mexico, Haiti, I don't care where you're at, the same hate for Christians can now be mobilized. The same laws can be passed. The same persecutions can happen. You see what, I, what the picture is here? God is going to permit this even more and more before the final day. And I just kind of see it. I mean, I, I've never seen such a... I know sin has always been. We know that. There's always been persecution. We know that. We, nothing new under the sun there. It's just the magnification of it now. It, 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 it's, it's, it's just the point that the whole world now is bucking the very morality of God. There were always liberal countries. There were always immoral countries. France always made us blush, right? I mean, the French, they, they were always known as just very immoral, right? They were the ones that had the nudist beaches that nobody cared. That was life. And America's like, what in the world? And other countries, folks, we're getting to a place where every country is united in their immorality, in their 
acceptance of that which is an abomination to God. That which God says, I have not designed it this way. The LGBTQ pride flag flies pretty much unanimously over all nations now. And it will continue to increase. This is what I'm saying. This, in this day and age, this prophecy, this picture of the end times really comes into play, I'm saying. We are in a time that's unprecedented. Now, I'm not predicting, by the way, I'm not saying, hey, guys, within a week, the rapture is coming. Or not the rapture, the rapture is more dispensational. The Lord's coming back. It is a rapture in a sense. We are going to be taking, I'm not saying that. I'm not, I'm not giving a date. But I am saying, man, this is rough. Now, what about this day of the Lord? I've got to hurry up. Here it is. These demonic spirits, they perform signs, they go abroad, they, they incite kings and nations to rally against the morals of God, therefore attacking God's people, therefore arresting them, putting them to death. These things will increase. And God will allow the nations to unite, is what it's saying here, in full force against this church. The Euphrates is dried up. There is no more withholding. They will march freely around the world against God's people. Verse 16. Here's the ultimate goal of that, the ultimate purpose of that. And they assembled at the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. This is, this is, again, symbolic of what's happening. They're all going to be united. It will finally happen. They will assemble, and it will come down to one battle. Armageddon, which means Mount Megiddo. Har is the word Mount Megiddo. Is literally, there is no Mount Megiddo. It's a town on a mountain. So Har Megiddo was a fortress that, a city, a fortress city that overlooked the plain northwest of Jerusalem. And this plain is massive. It's wide open space, right? The plain there that Megiddo looks over. I mean, this is where many battles of antiquity were fought, right? This is where Deborah and Barak, back in the Old Testament, they defeated the Canaanites there. This is where King Saul was defeated by the Philistines there. This is where um, um, Gideon blew his trumpet and defeated the Midianites there. So it's a fitting place for a symbolic final battle of, of all of God's enemies. As a matter of fact, even up in the modern times, it's, it's a picture of battle. I mean, Napoleon fought on that field. The British Army in World War I had a huge campaign in this place. So yes, it's, fitting, it's a fitting symbol that Megiddo represents in this vision the battlefield of the world. And that's the symbology here. Symbolism. Now, again, I think it's a symbol. I think it, here's one reason I would think it's a sim symbolism. I mean, as large as that place is, it is, and if you've been over there, and I haven't, I've seen pictures, but people that have been said, wow, you look over that, it's, it's amazing, just huge. But as large as that plane is beneath the ghetto, and as large as it was for ancient warfare, compared to today's armies, I don't think it would really, from what the, the research I've done says, that it wouldn't even be large enough for one single military formation, right? One whole deployment of one nation, much less all the nations of the world literally gathering in that plane. So again, I believe the symbolism is 
God removes restraints so that all the world can form against the Christians all around the world. And that's the battlefield. The world is the battlefield. God will return, and the whole world will be Armageddon. G.K. Beale says it like this. The battles in Israel associated with Megiddo become a typological symbol of the last battle against the saints and Christ, which occurs throughout the whole world. So that's, that's kind of how we see it. And I think that goes with Psalm 2, verses 2 through 5 that we read. We're going to wrap it up here. Here's what it says. Again, talking about the nations of the world and their battle with God and how it's going to finally end. Verse 2, the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. So that's exactly what Revelation is saying. There's going to be this, this desire for the whole world, all the armies of the world, all the people of the world, to throw Christianity off, to just burst their bonds, get rid of them. So that's the plan. And yet, he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury. Again, alluding to the final battle. And again, that seventh seal, that final thing that we will see coming next week. So again, the sixth bowl is like the sixth trumpet and the sixth seal. They are setting up for that final seventh judgment. The day of the Lord. Armageddon, whatever you want to call that. Now, in conclusion, I want to say this. We, we learned some things here. One of the things I think that, that we learned is that Christians aren't going to be winning over the whole world before Christ returns. Now, there are some eschatologies that say that we will, that we will actually be taking over pretty much every nation. Our laws will be the laws of the land. We're pretty much going to usher in a pretty, pretty much a, a, a Christian uh, world before, and then, then Christ returns, and we've already done the job. Ah, I have a hard time with that post-millennial view. However, I believe the gospel will continue to go successfully into all the world. That's what God promised us. So in that sense, the kingdom is reigning. We are victorious. No matter how they try to snuff out Christianity around the world, look how the church continues to grow. You can't stamp it out. So the gospel is going to continue to be proclaimed around the world until Christ comes. However, history will end with Satan organizing a worldwide persecution of Christians around the world. That's what we're seeing in, in Revelation. We, at the very end, this is, again, what I see Revelation teaching us, instead of Christians have, having overcome all the governments and taking them over and installed the Ten Commandments in every nation, and there's no more crime, and, you know, we're, we're ruling, instead of that, I, be, I believe it's going to be like we're going to be the besieged city of Jerusalem with Hezekiah shaking inside their uh, and, and King Sennacherib outside, and, and they're praying, right? Hezekiah is praying, and all Israel is praying, and they're surrounded by the enemy. They're besieged. Until the angel of the Lord appears and slays the armies of Sennacherib and frees the people. That's the picture of what we're seeing in Revelation. And someone says that that's a, that's a bleak picture. I don't like that picture, right? We, really, we, we like the picture. I do too. I'm with you. I like the picture that says, no, none of that's going to happen to a Christian. The rapture is going to happen first. We're out of here. Then everybody left behind is going to suffer those things. We're not going to suffer persecution. I like that one. 
But if, as far as I'm saying is what we've been reading, this is what I see. And how do we know? Look at this. Look at this. In the midst of all of this, in the midst of what we've read, these three judgments, these bold judgments that sound just like the other judgments that we've been looking at in Revelation, building up to, and culminating up to this one moment, look what we see. It's almost as though, right in the middle, in verse 15, which I skipped, verse 15, it's almost as though Jesus interrupts the vision to speak directly to his people. Look at what he says. This, this parentheses of promise, I call it, because it's in parentheses. <laughs> Jesus but, butts in and he says, Behold, I am coming. <laughs> That'll, as, as my old preachers used to say, That'll preach. Those, those, those three words, behold, are four words. Behold, I am coming. That's glorious. But, but here, here's, the, here's the promise for us. Behold, I am coming like a thief. Meaning, it could be any time. You don't know when I'm coming. The enemy won't know when I'm coming. They'll think they've got the upper hand when I come. They, they, nobody will have a clue when I'm coming. But here's the key, the first four words. But I am coming. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. Now, what is this? talking about again i'm coming i'm coming and we as his people what are we clothed in we're clothed in the righteousness of christ that's our garments he has put those on us so he's just encouraging us hey stay awake keep looking up keep trusting me keep being faithful stay vigilant keep awake and that means don't get settled in and lulled to sleep in this world do not make this world your home do not get comfortable here do not buy into the ideologies of this world the false ideologies of this world do not become worldly you're in the world but stay awake i'm coming and, he, and, and the idea of garments he goes on to say why we have a garment on and those who don't have the garment of christ it says they will go about naked and be seen exposed. That's the, that's, the, that's the opposite. Where he's saying, don't do that. Stay faithful to me. Rest in me. Trust in me. I will clothe you. Otherwise, you will go around naked and be seen exposed. We actually read, I didn't even plan that, but Jeremy had First Peter in here talking about that day when he returns and the whole world will be what? Exposed to the judgment of God. So what a glorious truth it is. And here's the end. This, this is why, again, that Revelation is so, I think, timely for us. And it really is encouraging. Yes, horrible things. And whether I'm explaining these, and I don't think any pastor can, that's preached throughout the ages can say, oh, yeah, we've got the definite interpretation. But I think in general, we all say the same thing. There is horrific times a-coming. <laughs> that's no doubt. And... What I'm trying to say is we don't have to wait. Like some dispensational plans, there are horrific times a present. There are horrific judgments and suffering now. But the promise is, I am coming. You are clothed in my righteousness. And no matter what happens, even if you are slaughtered before I get there, you will be in my presence at my altar for eternity in heaven. There's where we rest. There's our hope. 
And, and it's also an encouragement for us to go out there and tell other people. This is it. This is why we exist. If, it, if we really believe this book tonight, if we really believe everything that I'm saying, can we not see that this should change the way we live and plan our lives on, 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 on a daily basis? How we react to people, how we react to our family, yes, how we love our children and our spouses, but also how we love our neighbors and our friends and our co-workers and our enemies even, and how we are faithful to warn them about the wrath to come and the hope and the glorious salvation found in Christ. Let's rest in that truth as his gathered church tonight. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for